The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. If you never take the time to confront the ways in which you are weird about money, if you don't do the work, then you're never going to make the progress. Hey, everyone. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, and this is Everyday Better, a self-improvement podcast where every week I sit down with some of the world's brightest minds and bravest hearts to learn how we can improve ourselves, our relationship to others, and the world around us. Today, I'm talking to Paco de Leon. Paco is the author of the book Finance for the People, founder of the Hell Yeah Group, and a fellow podcaster. Her show is called Weird Finance, and her work started with the idea of supporting people who are creators and how they think about money. Now it's expanded for all of us to benefit from. Paco is going to break down in our conversation the intricate relationship between self-worth, money, and how we contribute to the world. Now, this isn't just a finance talk. It's a conversation about empowering yourself to become more self-aware, more informed, and as Paco says, suffer less when it comes to money. We're doing this by digging into Paco's three hard truths. Number one, knowledge is not enough. Number two, we have to challenge our limiting beliefs. And number three, we have to recognize we have so much more power than we think and reclaim it. This conversation matters because it affects not just how you earn and how you spend or budget, but it's also about how you show up in your work, the choices you make when it comes to how you contribute to the world in a meaningful way. It's about recognizing that financial clarity can help us live and work with more intention. And let me tell you, whether you're navigating a career path or teetering on a significant life choice, all of these things involve money. And today's episode will offer you some really invaluable perspectives that I hope you can move forward with with more clarity. I loved Paco. So you are in for a treat. Get your notes out. Get ready. Here she is. Ultimately, I just want to help people suffer a little bit less, which I know sounds like a tall order and is complicated when it comes to the world of money and personal finance. But I just think that's what I happen to study and something that I dug really deep into. And over time, it's like I've crawled into a window and that work is what allows me to help people do their own self-work, right? Find their own limiting beliefs, figure out where they can find their agency, where they can find their power. And the way that I look at personal finance and everything is, it's like an overlay. Like you learn the rules of a game, you learn how you're in your own way, you learn how it's unfair, you learn how this whole thing works, you find your power. And if you can do that in this area where interest rates are out of your control, what the stock market is doing is out of your control, we're contending with the wage gap, the wealth gap. If you can find your power in an area like this, you can most certainly find your power in other areas of life. You can figure out a way to improve your relationships by 1% or half a percent over time. And that's ultimately what I'm doing. And so you started as a debt collector. Like, Can you talk about your own experience in your career and how you actually pivoted to what you're doing now? I studied finance and econ. My parents are both immigrants. They never explicitly said, don't do something impractical. But I never grew up around anyone doing creativity for money. I saw a lot of examples of learning a trade 
And for those who chose not to learn a trade, they were doing blue-collar work, which seemed hard, right? They were in a factory. They were on their feet. And I thought, my parents came to this country so that I can sit down and think. So I choose finance. Unbeknownst to me, two years later, we're about to watch the housing market crash, which leads to the Great Recession. I got a job as a debt collector not knowing the job was a debt collector. It was called credit manager, and it was like a cattle call. It was me and hundreds of other people standing in a long line at this call center, and we really had to audition. It was very awkward. So we're sitting across from these other collectors, and we do a mock phone call. I ended up getting the job. And from there, like that, you know, opens up the door for me in the world of finance, understanding how credit works, understanding how debt works, understanding the psychology. After that, I did small business consulting and management here in Los Angeles. Uh, I feel very lucky to have landed that job. I basically learned bookkeeping and how to run business day to day. And then I eventually pivot to personal financial planning. So I'm working at this wealth management firm and I'm actually making less there than I did when I first started off. I don't know how this is happening to me. I got in with an admin position, which typically is going to pay less. And from there, I create my own position as a junior financial planner. And I think because I had gotten in on this admin level, my boss was like, great, we got her at this level, we don't have to pay her more. And I was not with myself in terms of being able to talk about finances comfortably, being able to face my own finances comfortably. And the biggest thing I've had to deal with in my life is this idea that I'm not worthy, that I am not worth being paid a living wage. And so that's a big issue that I've had to unpack and contend with. Eventually, when I was working at the financial planning office, I was a broke financial planner, if you can believe it. I was riding my bike to work, which was a 15-mile round trip, so seven and a half miles one way, seven and a half miles back in Los Angeles rush hour traffic, which is not the safest thing to be doing, and doing like a little bird bath in the downstairs lobby bathroom. So I was struggling, and I really just believed there's no way I can get these people to pay me more. And... I'm stuck. And so I saw the obstacle. And instead of doing, I think, what would have been more linear and more straightforward, which is like face your stuff, confront the fact that you're uncomfortable talking about money, confront the fact that you really do believe that you're not worth being paid a living wage and that you must struggle. Instead of confronting those things and reading about negotiation, I grew very resentful and I ended up leaving and working for myself. I was doing cannabis consulting, and actually it was that guy. He laid me off the last time, and it was a completely remote position. It was a very interesting conversation when he laid me off. He said, hey, Paco, will you promise me one thing? And I was like, this is a weird thing to ask somebody you're firing for them to promise you something. But he goes, promise me you won't go back and get some, like, boring office job. He said, you're really too smart for that. He said, you'd be surprised at what happens when you allow yourself to rise to the occasion. And that was so profoundly impactful for me. I know word for word exactly what he said. And that was my sliding door moment. I sat down and I filed for unemployment, which was my universal basic income. And this is very, very Los Angeles, very woo-woo. I just sat down every morning for 20 minutes and I meditated. It was the first time in my life that I really allowed stillness. And I said, what am I here for? What should I do? And I asked that question. And over time, what started to bubble up was maybe you can help your community, which are creative professionals, with finance because you have a very sharp tool. You've been doing this for a while now. So the question then, the hypothesis was, 
can I help my community while keeping a roof over my head and food in my belly? And so what you're seeing with my work, with the Hell Yeah Group, with Finance for the People, with Weird Finance, the podcast, is just me trying to gather data to prove the hypothesis. Wow. So I am always inspired by people who have found their way to their work because of their own experiences. I find that there's always richer conversation in there and also that the why feels so much deeper. That is the way that we keep ourselves going. So I started this podcast on the side. It was not my job. For a few years there, it was just me figuring it out. And it was mostly because of my own experiences with asking big questions about what we're all doing here and anxiety and struggling with my own mental health that got me to this point that I wanted to start this show. So like hearing you also say, I watched this happen. I was a broke financial planner, right? Like the cobbler's children have no shoes. That kind of feeling is one that I really resonate with. When you think about how you support people in the creative industry, there's certainly like more of a narrative now that you can make money and a lot of money as a creator, right? That hasn't always been true. What are you seeing now with people who are in the creative space who are trying to make a living and what are you sharing with them as practical advice? I think it's really hot and cold with the creative industry because there are a lot of young people. I'm so about Gen Z, they have such confidence. Millennials, we didn't have that. We were always apologizing, asking for permission, but they're just coming in hot, like starting companies, being creators, making stuff on TikTok. And it's really inspiring. Then there's this other slice happening where it feels like, and I spoke to somebody on my podcast who's been a filmmaker for 20 plus years. And I feel this too, like kind of observing my own social circle, my own professional circle, where the creative services piece of things feels very undervalued because there's so much creativity and low barriers now because we can just hit record. Now we have a podcast. I have a phone that I can film myself. Every computer comes with GarageBand, right? We're saturated with so much content and so much output that I also think that the people that are paying for it, there's so much of it that I don't think that they're valuing it as much. So I think there's still different classes of creativity. I mean, I think the practical advice that I'm giving to people is you have to really be adaptable even more than five years ago and 10 years ago. Technology is cannibalizing and changing everything so quickly. Being adaptable is something that we need to recognize because with large language models, also known as AI, what I think we're going to experience is a tremendous amount of development in a short amount of time. So like 100 years of changes within 10 or 20 years of time. And so just recognizing that what worked today might not work tomorrow. And that's a tough thing to have to accept. I think a lot of our challenges as human beings on Earth is that we're standing on the shore screaming at the waves to stop when we have to, unfortunately, change how we view the waves. I unequivocally agree with that. I love that metaphor. You talk about these three money truths. Can you tell me about each of those and how we can use those every day? Yeah. In terms of ways that we can change our own perspective, the first thing is that knowledge is not enough, right? You can't just read a book and never have to apply it or never have to experience anything, right? Or never have to contend with your own emotions because it's one thing to read my story and to hear how screwed up I was about money and all the ways I've been weird about money. But if you never take the time to confront the ways in which you are weird about money, if you don't do the work, then you're never going to make the progress, right? So getting maybe less information and more application. The other thing is 
how you view the world is going to impact your entire experience of it. And again, let's zoom all the way out. I can't prove anything outside of my own experience of what I'm experiencing is actually even real. And that's not to say that you can gaslight yourself into a better life, right? That's just a truth that everything that happens to you, maybe there's not just one side of the coin, not just two sides of the coins, but many sides of the coins. And I read a quote once that I think really sums it up beautifully. And they said, many perspectives make up the whole picture. And that's just the reality of it. I think the more we can understand that many perspectives make up the whole picture, that's just going to make your financial life better. Because if you're arguing with your partner, you can recognize, okay, they're coming at this from an entirely different perspective. If you're arguing with your parents about how they want to deal with their finances, okay, they're coming at this from an entirely different perspective. And neither of them necessarily have to be, it's not a zero sum game. One doesn't have to be true while the other one is false. They can both be true. And like, here's my tall order to society. Imagine if we all could think that way, where we could hold two opposing perspectives within the same thought, within the same breath. That would eliminate so many problems. Yeah. Being someone who I've read a million books and I became obsessed with personal development, that's all I did was read. And there was a point where someone said to me, you have to be in relationship with others to apply this, to actually grow, to actually show up in the way you want to show up. And at first I was like, no, I've read all of this. <laughs> I thought I was supposed to do this on my own. And it's riskier to apply it with the way you work, with the people you work with, your friends, with your parents, with your family. It's riskier. But I will say having taken that shift and go, okay, I've read all of this. So it sounds buttoned up when it comes out of my mouth, but when it actually happens, it's very different. And it's messy. I've learned so much more that feels like it's actually like in me versus just in my brain. Yeah. What you're saying reminds me of my own self every time I'm in a Trader Joe's parking lot. When I'm not in the Trader Joe's parking lot and I'm having my coffee in the morning, the sun is shining on my face. It's so easy to say, I am such a good, kind person. But inside of a Trader Joe's parking lot, I'm like, bro, what are you doing and why are you doing it? And I have to catch myself and say, oh, this is an opportunity to exercise all these things that I think about myself, about sending people loving vibes from my heart, even if they're pissing me off. I know the podcast changed its name recently, but as a nod to the old name, you got to be in the arena, right? It's true. Yeah. And that's how it started was like talking about it outside of it versus saying, like, I've been in it and walked the walk and now I can share. Yeah. And can I even say beyond that, dealing with weirdness about money, it's very easy to intellectualize it. Sometimes you just have to feel it in your body. When you log into your bank account and you're freaking out or you want to not look, what does that feel like in your body? It's a lot easier, I think, to talk about it than it is to feel it. And I think that's also a huge step is like, now we recognize this. What can we do to feel better about it? Yeah, I know those feelings. People think that everyone is not dealing with some of the similar challenges, but I was definitely a victim and a perpetrator of lifestyle creep for a long time where it was like, okay, now I live in New York. Now I make this much money. It's not about how much you make. It's about how you use what you make. And so those feelings of like shame and fear and avoidance are so real for everyone at every stage, which I hope also just helps people who are listening go, oh, this is a universal conversation. Absolutely. Yeah, the other thing I've been thinking a lot too, like in terms of lifestyle creep is, because I am victim to that as well, thinking about solving non-money problems with money. 
You want to be perceived a certain way. You want to belong to a group. You want to be accepted. And you think, okay, if I pay for this social club or I go to this concert or I wear this sweater or I have this lamp, we can go on and on. Then we think, okay, now we'll finally be loved or accepted or liked or not feared. Whatever it is, we're all dealing with our own kind of cocktail of navigating through life and kind of healing like childhood wounds or healing wounds that you know we've accumulated through just going through life. And I think it's important to recognize sometimes, you know, we're throwing money at a problem that cannot be solved, something that's underlying, it's within and taking that moment to acknowledge that person who's hurt, who's wounded, who needs healing, saying, I'm here for you, buddy. And I'm not just going to buy a sweater to try to gloss over it. Let's dig in. Because nothing changes when you buy the sweater. You're still you in a cute sweater, but you're still <laughs> dealing with your stuff. I mean, I have to say, you know, you being a child of immigrants and a person of color, me being a Black American, all of us are facing our own experience of this, which is really like getting down to the idea of how do I get in certain doors and how do I get seen and accepted once I'm in those doors? We all have our own version of what those doors are, but we mold and shift around that a lot of times to just be accepted. But then you get in those doors and realize a lot of those people are dealing with the same stuff. And anyone's random acceptance or love is not going to change how you feel about yourself. Yeah, for me too, I think growing up queer in Orange County, California, which is a conservative part of Southern California, I look at what I'm doing now. I look at the fact that I publish a book. I look at the fact that as soon as a opportunity for a podcast deal was on the table, I was like, yes, of course, I accept. So much of what I've been able to do with my work and, you know, how public it is and how people like you, it, it feels good when you're like, I like what you're doing. I like the output that you're creating. I like, you know, how it makes me feel. And uh, other people recognizing that, a lot of that too is just me seeking validation. <laughs> And we all do it. And the thing I've been contending with a lot lately is just pausing and saying, are you creating more work to create more work? Are you afraid to sit still? Are you afraid to confront who you are without all the doing? It's like I equate my own self-worth now, which I didn't before because I didn't really have a career with my career. And so this is this like next beautiful layer of unpacking that I'm doing. Okay, so this is going into your, your second point. The first point is knowledge is not enough. The second point is about our beliefs and what we say to ourselves. So tell me how we can think about shifting our own beliefs, because I know that's a big process, right? Yeah. So your beliefs about money are going to come from every external stimuli that you've encountered. So a lot of them are going to come from your caretakers. So whatever your parents think about money and how they behaved about money when you're younger, you just write a little narrative. If mom and dad are always fighting about money, maybe you're like adorable, underdeveloped prefrontal cortex brain says money creates fights. And then we have that script. It becomes ingrained. It's a belief. And then from there, we can draw lines with if money creates fights and I don't want to create fights, then I'm going to never ask for more money at my job. Or I'm never going to come to my partner who I want to marry and say, guess what? I have a ton of debt and I'm scared to talk to you about this. Nope. 
It's going to pop up when you guys are thinking about moving in together and your credit report gets run. And now you have a stressful situation where you're trying to move in together and the stakes are a little bit higher. And now you're having to confront this thing. And that could have been linked to money creates fights, right? And maybe even then taking your relationship to the level after that of should we have joint finances or how can we merge our finances so they're more joint and we're working towards common goals. If you think money equals fighting, then you'll probably resist that. And then another, like we have society-wide beliefs. I talked about this earlier, this great taboo that we should not talk about money. That is so dominant in our culture, right? No pay transparency, which then continues to exacerbate the pay gap, continues to exacerbate inequality. And then from there, it's like, I never negotiated because again, talking about money was just so uncomfortable. That's one piece of the layer cake. The next piece of the layer cake is I'm not worthy, right? So you can start to see how, and I'm not saying that inequality is not real and circumstances outside of our control are not real. Those are very real. But the one area that we can control, we have to take responsibility for that. And we have to recognize that this is, it's such a small area. So we need to like show up and play. We need to show up and be ready to unpack that because it is literally the only piece that we can control. How we think money works in the world, what we believe we deserve. And then that impacts our direct actions. Am I going to negotiate? Am I going to consolidate my student loan debt or am I going to even face my student loan debt? Am I going to try to talk to my partner on a regular basis about our financial goals? Am I going to, even something small, roll over my 401k or get my tax documents to my accountant on time? We're taking a quick break. We'll be right back with the amazing Paco de Leon. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back with Paco de Leon on how we can use the hard truths about money to improve our confidence and suffer less. So you talked about at the beginning this idea of, am I even worthy of making a living wage? And... 
We all have our own version of that story of what I'm worthy of and what I'm not worthy of. Is there a practice or a set of tools that you use to shift worthiness, which I think is different than maybe the beliefs I have about money? Wow, that is a million-dollar question. <laughs> exactly, and I want you to tell everyone it doesn't happen overnight. That's my. That's where I'm leading you. <laughs> yeah, for me, it's been a long journey, and I've had to use a lot of different tools, and I continue to use a lot of different tools. And the more I make progress, the more I climb up on the hill of making financial progress, the greater the tumble down. So for me, what was really impactful in the beginning was talk therapy. And talk therapy helped me just feel my feelings. I was in a place, you know, in my 20s where I was afraid of my feelings, so I'd turn away from them and then just do wacky stuff instead of facing my feelings. And you get on this treadmill, at least for me, I was on this treadmill of distracting myself, numbing out, just not facing it, staying super busy, right? Taking on more work and more projects and then somehow still not getting paid enough. So talk therapy was the first step. I started to feel my feelings. My therapist would say, see, Paco, you didn't die, right? The feeling passed. She would say that our sessions were a way for me to have like resistance training. And the resistance was you're going to feel your feelings and you're not going to die. That's step one, recognizing that. The other piece for me was meditation. Meditation allowed me to not get so darn attached to a thought that would pop up in your brain because thoughts pop up into your brain all the time. And if you think about it, where do they come from? Meditation allowed me to detach from them. And this analogy, this metaphor is a very common thing with meditation. It allows you to look at your mind as a sky and your thoughts as clouds drifting by. So then now I'm feeling my feelings when I'm feeling scared and unsafe and worried and anxious. I'm not afraid to feel them. And now when I hear a thought in my mind of you're not worthy, people like you don't deserve that. Who do you think you are? That's just a thought. I'm going to let it pass like a cloud. The other thing that really helped me is journaling. Julia Cameron wrote The Artist's Way and so many of my peers are creative. So I can only get so far in my life without them saying, do you do morning pages? No, what's morning pages? So I started morning pages, which you sit down and you just stream of consciousness right in your journal for three pages. And that allows me to then tap into something subconscious. It's like a bone that a dog is chewing on to get to the core of it. That allows me to just free write. And if I'm feeling particularly anxious about something, great. I've carved out a little bit of space to just dump it. And a lot of it is about money, right? A lot of it is about here I am accepting all this work when maybe you need to protect yourself or be more caring about your time. And yeah, you just don't need to give away so much to everyone just to make a buck, right? You're safe. A lot of the stuff for me lately is you're safe and secure. How can you embody safety and security? I've hired coaches in the past. Coaches have helped me with implementing gratitude practices and just other kind of funny mind tricks that you could play when you're paralyzed with fear or you're really oriented towards scarcity, like how could we be more expansive? And then drinking enough water every day, eating really nutrient-dense foods, getting enough sleep, and moving my body every day. All of those things, if you can believe it or not, if we can draw a line from A to B, all of those things have helped me really unpack and heal that wound for me of I am not worthy. Okay, so first and foremost, you and I are definitely on similar pages. I very much think that all of this is connected. And so as a coach, when I work with someone and they come to me about a struggle with their career, 
We recognize that struggle has an impact across almost every area of their life. It's all connected. And I always start with my coaching. I'm like, we're going to talk about things you don't expect to talk about. And I let them take me there, but we end up there. We end up in places where they're like, wait a minute, I came to you to learn how to be a better communicator or to build confidence. But actually, there's challenges over here that have to do with how I think about money or how I think about my time or how I think about my worth. And so all of these things just are interconnected. And I think we have a hard time, which you mentioned this earlier, holding the complexity of the idea that it's not all compartmentalized. It's not a dualistic kind of way of approaching things. It's saying, how is this all showing up in my life if I take the big view and look at it as like a blueprint or a map? Yeah. I got my training in financial planning, right? So we would have couples come in and they're having a conversation like I have a really great example of the multi layers of this is about money. This isn't about money. We had this couple come in and the wife earned way more than the husband. The wife had more family wealth than the husband and the husband to make things a little bit more complex worked for his mother. So his mom was paying him and the couple had children. They were paying the nanny more than the husband was getting paid by his mom. So from a pure financial planning perspective, it's straightforward. The husband quits his job. They save that money instead of paying the nanny. The husband just stays home. Great. They're not going to be bleeding out. Let's just say that extra $20,000. That's the plan. That's what the math says, right? And maybe in different dynamics, if it were reversed, we would just go on our merry way, give our advice and say, we're amazing. Bye. But we lay out the options. That was one option. After that meeting, the wife calls us and says, we cannot have that. That cannot be the advice for my husband. I don't know if it was like no husband of mine or really what those layers were. But again, the math, math, but the humans, human. <laughs> That's a great example. And it's one that I think comes up a lot. I have friends and colleagues who, when they have kids, go, I'm making this amount of money, but this is what daycare costs. And a lot of the people I'm talking about are women. In that case, it tends to be a very... I'm putting air quotes around this obvious conversation that she shouldn't continue working or she should put that in a back seat and take something on that's part time. My mom was part time a lot of my life growing up. And so it was an obvious thing when in reality, it's like, no, there's 18 million other layers to this. OK, tell me about the third piece, which is about how we can find our own power and change our lives. So finding our own power is snuggled right up against this idea of your belief. So it first starts with recognizing that in every situation, you do have power. And I know that's really hard for a lot of people who are maybe trapped in a loop of anxiety about their finances or stress about their finances. But the first step is to recognize that you at least have the power to calm your nervous system. That's step one. And there's lots of different ways that you can do that. And there are lots of free ways. And even though it is a fleeting moment, right? Like I saw a rainbow coming through the window of my house the other day and it was on the ground. And I thought, that's beautiful. I'll never be able to grab it or keep it. And it just comes when it comes. That's this feeling of like inner peace or financial peace. We do our best to create the conditions to appreciate that rainbow and then Boom, before we know it, it's gone. So recognize that what I'm prescribing, what I'm hoping for everybody, it is naturally fleeting, right? I want you to feel contentment. I want you to feel peace, but it's naturally fleeting. So that's a good thing to recognize. But the other thing is you do have a lot of tools. Again, it sounds so silly, but before logging into your bank account, you can take you know, a deep breath. Andrew Huberman recommends the fastest way 
to calm your nervous system is the double inhale, long exhale, which, you know, when you're crying, you're sobbing and your body makes you go, that is a natural mechanism for calming your nervous system. That's one way to calm your nervous system. Again, before thinking about money, talking about money, calling back a bill collector, coming up with your student loan repayment plan. The other thing we can do is recognize your patterns and don't create a situation that's not going to be good for yourself. And here's the analogy that I like to use. If you ever go to the grocery store hungry, well, that's bad. You know that's a bad situation. For me, I'm going to come home with so much stuff and I might not even have enough stuff to make a meal, which is like the comedic tragedy of it all. And it's because you're, you're not in the right state to be making those decisions, right? And so think about that from a financial context. I always recommend that people split up their spending between essentials, non-essentials, and then always be putting money towards their goals for the future. But by separating out that spending, if you have your bills money in a bills account and your fund money in a fund account, that is one mechanism for not going to the grocery store hungry, so to speak. So that's another way to step into your own power. And then the last one, which again, this is a bitter pill for a lot of people, is to recognize that just because something happened to you and you're in that situation, taking responsibility doesn't mean accepting fault. It simply means taking responsibility. Once you're able to take responsibility and recognize that it doesn't equal accepting fault, that's the first step to being empowered because now you're recognizing, okay, great. I slipped on the banana peel. I didn't put the banana peel on the ground, but my ass is on the ground. What can I do to get up? What's weaving through our conversation is, I think one is that our challenges that we have with money intersect with so many other challenges. So come for the money, come for like finance for the people, leave with a whole lot more around what we believe about ourselves, our confidence, our worth, which impacts so many other areas, our careers, our relationships, et cetera. Number two is the idea that we all live in a world that is unjust, unfair, complex, unclear, and in perhaps environments where we don't know what the bigger fix is at a larger systemic level, but that within that, we can still take a pause and decide how we want to behave in that situation and adopt our own version of what personal power looks like. And I love the idea of responsibility and not fault. Is there anything else that you would leave us with that is really important for anybody who's showing up, trying to learn more about this and showing up with all the hope, shame, fear, avoidance, joy, all of that, dreams and desires as they move toward their own financial future? Yeah, I just want to encourage people to start where they are. And if you start making progress towards something and then falls by the wayside, you can always begin again. Yeah, you can always begin again. And in fact, I think a lot of us will have to because life is also incredibly uncertain. So there will be points where things don't go in a linear way if that hasn't already happened. Okay, Paco, I'm going to have you complete these three statements for me. The first is better humans are. Compassionate. Better work is. Better work is less work. Better work is less work. What does that mean? <laughs> To be effective and to be able to have more dimension as who you are outside of your work, I think can have a profound impact for your work. And also we ought to find fulfillment outside of work. It's a big part of us, but we're not just our work. 
And then final statement, a better world has. A better world has peace. Paco, thank you so much for being here. You are a gift. Thank you so much for sharing the work that you're sharing. It is my duty and my pleasure. That was founder of the Hell Yeah Group and author of Finance for the People, Paco de Leon. You can find Paco's book wherever you like to get them. Her podcast is called Weird Finance, and she is all over Instagram under the Hell Yeah Group. One big thing before we go. Our relationship with money is complicated, to say the least. It involves how we think about our work, how we spend our days, how we interact with each other, and of course, how we view ourselves. Now, we can't remove money and all its baggage from the equation of our work and our personal lives, but we can change the narrative by embracing the hard truths you heard Paco talk through today. I hope that's what you got from this. We can all be better at defining and living what we value. We can check ourselves when we've adopted unhelpful viewpoints about us, our work, and our money. And we can remember that we are so much more powerful than we think. If this conversation resonated with you, share it with the first person who comes to mind. You never know how it could help them. And support other people like you in finding our show by leaving us a rating before you go. While you're at it, write a one-sentence review telling me and the Everyday Better team what you love about our show or this episode. And as always, you can find me on LinkedIn, writing about human potential and living every day with more intention and clarity. Everyday Better is a production of LinkedIn News. The show is produced by Alexis Ramdow. Our associate producer is Rafa Fariha. Asaf Gadron is our sound engineer. He makes sure we sound good in the studio. Joe DiGiorgi mixed our show. Enrique Montalvo is the executive producer of LinkedIn Editorial Productions. Dave Pond is head of news production. Courtney Coop is head of LinkedIn Original Audio and Video. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. And I'm Leah Smart. Thanks for coming with me, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>